We're going to be in uh, Isaiah chapter 11 tonight. Um, I think moving uh, rather quickly, the first nine verses is uh, my goal. Um, You know, I think uh, often with a a gemstone or a a jewel, a precious uh, stone like that, I think the setting of that stone is very often um, a way to enhance the beauty of the thing. And I find uh, that the Lord very often uh, in prophetic scripture, in particular, the where that we see the promises, the proclamations that the Lord uh, is making, a prediction for our blessing, where that occurs, um, often makes the truth of that promise itself that much more glorious. Uh, I think that we will see that tonight. Um, and that's not because the Lord is capricious or unkind. It's not that he creates darkness to highlight the splendor of his work. As we'll see tonight, uh, the darkness that Israel is walking through is very real and self-inflicted. Um, we'll look at um, Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. We'll see a prophetic uh, declaration of the Messiah's work into the future. We'll see some of the impacts of his ultimate ministry proclaimed, but again, coming from uh, a bleak Moment, and I, and I just want to camp on that just for one second at the start. How kind of the Lord is it at the beginning of a decreed chastening for his people Israel to build in promise of blessing that will give them hope to walk through it? He does not need to do that, uh, but it's who he is and it's how he deals with us. He, he front loads this discussion that we'll see tonight about the coming one in order that they can walk through the darkness ahead. And that uh, encourages me, it should encourage all of us. Uh, it, should, it should help me know um, how to think about him, how to understand him, how to trust the Father. So in order to kind of get to chapter 11, we need to take just a quick run through what has happened um, in Isaiah's ministry among Israel through the first 10 chapters. The Lord has continued to deliver some really difficult truth uh, to the people in, and again, uh, we'll go through a lot of scriptures tonight. You will not need to keep up with all of them. References will probably go up there, but um, try to just stay tuned in and and I'll walk you through it. But in Isaiah 1-9, the Lord had spoken um, through the people themselves and they cry out, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. That's part of what they understand is coming their way. And, and the good news there is the Lord did indeed promise them a few survivors. In Isaiah 1.13, the Lord, speaking in his own voice through Isaiah, says, bring me your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. It's bad. It's not a great picture. It's not good messages. It's difficult to hear and absorb. But to this point in Isaiah, we've also received glimpses of wonder that's ahead. Uh, In Isaiah 2, verse 2, we've had a proclamation that the house of the Lord at some point will become the chief of all mountains, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up. We hear in Isaiah 7, 14 that an, an unasked for sign will be given by the Lord himself. The Lord himself will give you a sign, a savior born of a virgin. That's wonderful news in the midst of this darkness. In Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, we hear the Lord declared as both judge and sanctuary. 
Right? There's encouragement for the people of the Lord to flee to him. In Isaiah 9, uh, verse 2, we hear that though they sit in great darkness, light is coming. And lastly, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, a very familiar passage that a child is proclaimed who will govern counsel and bring peace. So it hasn't all been bad news, but it's primarily bad. And the Lord inserts these moments of hope that his people will, will walk forward in that hope. So then chapter 10, immediately preceding where we'll be, has just, uh, the Lord has just described through Isaiah his dealings with Assyria, a nation who he is using very intentionally to discipline his people for all of the woes that he sets before us. But it's a nation that has grown haughty in their use, and the Lord is speaking of them that he is going to decimate them. He's going to judge them. And that judgment is brought forth as a, as a tree. It's like a, a giant stately tree that's being felled and left as nothing. That's what uh, chapter 10 had talked about. And that's, a, that's a, an image that the Lord uses frequently when he's talking about nations or rulers. Um, Ezekiel 31 Speaking to Egypt about Assyria, the Lord says through Ezekiel, um, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? Indeed, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon. And then he continues for another seven verses or so explaining how this greatness was directly attributed to the Lord's continued blessing. The Lord blessed and blessed and blessed and then in verse 10 of Ezekiel 31, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height and set its top among the thick boughs, its heart was lifted up in its height. Therefore, I will deliver it into the hand of the mighty one of the nations, and he shall surely deal with it. I have driven it out for its wickedness. And aliens, the most terrible of the nations, have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen on the mountains and in the valleys. Its boughs lie broken by all the rivers of the land and all of the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. So again, this is just to set for you this imagery that the Lord deals with haughtiness. He deals with leaders of nations and he deals with nations. This is the work he's doing. It's also the work he's doing in Israel as we, as we have come up to, to chapter 11. And so our passage... Um, We'll, we'll refer briefly to Daniel chapter 4 as well. It's probably the clearest uh, depiction of the, of the Lord judging and dealing uh, both near-term and long-term with one raised up in haughtiness, though blessed of the Lord, called of the Lord, useful to the Lord, one of the leaders of the nations who is completely, utterly humbled. And so we'd be foolish to walk away from tonight not hearing that message that we need to be careful. We need to stay humble. We need to stay under the Lord's leading, even in blessing, even in authority, even in power or oversight that he's entrusted, because we'll be held accountable for the way that we lead or, or rule. So our passage in, um, in Isaiah 11 has promise of the ushering in of our earth's ultimate healing. We'll hear of those impacts, impacts that we know them to be true by faith, but the reality is we haven't begun to see those truths in any great measure. They're, they're physical transformations that we'll, we'll talk about. We know them to be true. They're, they're just as certain as the coming of this one who we'll talk about in a moment, the branch, 
just as certain as his coming was, are these promises of restoration. And as we see them, they're only gonna be fully realized in the millennium, but they should give us great hope now. The Lord is setting this in this place for the purpose of hope to those who are being dealt with. So we'll see wonderful promises of future restoration, and we'll fix our gaze on that. And, and those, things, those things should stir our hearts. They should uh, encourage us in the Lord. So the passage kind of breaks out easily into three chunks. We'll look at two of them. Verses one through five speak of uh, the announcement and the description of this coming one, this branch. It'll, we'll talk about his nature. And then verses six through nine speak of the promised impacts of his coming, his rule and reign, what his presence will accomplish. And then were we able to get to them, uh, verses 10 through 16 in this passage, also fascinating, speak of the further work of the branch among the nations and among his people Israel. All that to say, Isaiah 11, verse one. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Well, it's interesting to start a passage with then. When is then was my first question. Well, it's this, this time being spoken about is after the Assyrians who have not come yet. And it's also after the Babylonians who the Lord will allow to finish this work of deportation and judgment of his people in his land. Their disobedience is such that they are outbound. They're leaving. And it's also, it's after Israel has been thoroughly disciplined and eventually allowed to return to the land. And it's at least several hundred years after that. And we'll talk about that. At that time, this is when the house of David will continue as promised. That's interesting because it's referred to here, uh, this growth that we'll talk about in depth in a minute is coming from, it says, the root of Jesse, not David. And most think that it's an indication of the, the, utter, um, the, utter, the utter dejectedness of the state of Israel in this moment that it's not just referring to the house of David, to the reign of David, that it, that it shifts back to his father because it doesn't really even want to give it the credence of you know, being connected to David. So that's to say things are bad. So the, even, even the good news that's coming forth is tainted by how, how difficult things are in the land. So, so he's not the, this branch is not revealed here as the greater David, which he is. He's referred to as the, a shoot from Jesse. And, and listen, apart from this promise or promises like it, it would be easy for God's people to be in utter despair, to begin to think that all is lost, that all that had been promised or hoped for, all that we had trusted in is now gone. Um, it wouldn't have been unreasonable to think that. But God, through this Davidic covenant, had promised before, 2 Samuel 7 tells us, your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So you have a proclamation of a forever throne and you have a reality of an, of an exile about to happen. How does that work together? We'll see a bit in a minute. Now, after the Mosaic covenant itself, it's this Davidic covenant that has the greatest amount of discussion in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, these, these promises receive the greatest amount of attention. And I just want to pause there to draw a parallel. Now, while obviously none of us have a uh, kingly 
promised descendant who will come from our physical offspring who will rule and reign over the earth. Like, we don't have that as a promise. But we do have a Savior who has promised to us to bring new life out of all things. And so I just want to ask, maybe as you sit here or as you listen, is there anything in your life, perhaps something that you, when you look at it, seems lifeless, seems destroyed, perhaps even like Israel, perhaps you recognize fully that it's your sin that's done it. I'm not saying that all difficulty or discipline or trial that we're going through is our own sin, but maybe you know why it's a stump in your life. Maybe you know. Maybe it's a, a relationship or a friendships, finances. Perhaps it's a gifting or calling from the Lord that's not been stewarded well, that's been now savaged, and you know. I want this passage to begin to breathe hope into your heart. I want it to breathe hope into my heart that the Lord is not done with these things. Now, um, that there is more true life ahead for it, that we're not to despair. So we're speaking of this rod, which really is a shoot that springs from Jesse's root. Um, the word shoot or branch here is referring to a sprig. It's, it's just a green, verdant shoot. Um, and when we, again, when we hear branch, we think tree, limbs out, fruit hanging. That's not what this is. This is a stump that's barely visible with a tender shoot that eventually comes up. That's, that's, what we're, that's the promise here that's going to bear fruit is that. Um, it's a very humble promise. Uh, so it's, again, not a normal branch, not a normal growth. Something significant had happened or is happening that leaves it in this state. But God isn't finished with the house of David and the covenant he's made. Now, <clears throat> the royal authority that was given to the house of David will have laid dormant for almost 600 years by the time Jesus makes his his entry uh, onto the scene by the time of his incarnation. So Jesus' entry is that new green sprout. Between this prophecy and the fulfilling of it in Isaiah and in the nation of Israel, their exile until Jesus appears, it is not good for the house. It does not look good for the house of David. It does not look hopeful. It does not look like that continues, which is difficult because we've got an eternal promise, right? It looks bad. Again, Jesus is that life. We see it. There's, there's a promise in this passage of a continuation of Israel's life and reign. And beyond that, like that alone would be enough to speak of. But the Lord goes beyond that to speak not only of good that will come to Israel, but the culmination of this branch is restoring all things. All things being made whole again is declared here as future fact. It's not posture, it, ju it just is. It's spoken forth by the Lord through Isaiah. Only the Lord can do that. Only the Lord can unveil chastening that's needed, discipline that's coming, difficulty ahead for a very long time and weave in in the same moment an absolute promise that will fulfill his earlier promises in amazing way. This is our, this is our God. This is why in the midst of our own failure or difficulty or someone else's failure or difficulty that's impacting us, we can have great hope. He is not done. He's not done at all. 
So this word for root, which is the, the word discussing Jesse in particular, the root of Jesse, it's a Hebrew word that anytime it's used of people or individuals, it typically um, has a connotation of firmness or permanence. The Lord has planted something, and although that thing's in the process of being cut off, a stump will remain. And that's the reference to Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar, who was raised up in pride, um, he is reduced to a stump, but it's spoken very clearly that uh, his roots were to be left in the ground. It, that's the exact same word as used here in Isaiah 11 of Jesse. And, and what become, do you recall what becomes of Nebuchadnezzar's stump was where the roots were left in the ground? Right? The Lord gives Nebuchadnezzar over to his insanity. He's off the reservation for quite some time. By the Spirit of the Lord, he's brought back to recognize the sovereignty of the Lord God. And from there, what does he become? He becomes a worshiper. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing here. He is taking Israel out in unbelief, unfaithfulness. They're being chastened. But a root is left and they will be brought back to that root, and the Lord will bring to life that root. There will be faithfulness. He will, they will be brought back as worshipers, and that's the work of the branch that we'll read about. So again, pride that took down Nebuchadnezzar and took down Assyria and Egypt and all these surrounding nations, we need to be careful of. We need to be cautious. Is it my own pride that has left me looking out at a stump? And if that's a truth for you, come to the Lord and deal with it because he's the one who deals righteously. He deals fairly with it. Now, this passage doesn't touch on a lot of other messianic promises that are very familiar to us. It doesn't speak of suffering Messiah at all. It doesn't speak of some of the more tender aspects of his ministry. It speaks very clearly of uh, his being spirit-filled. Um, so, we'll, so we'll look at that. But this is amazing that what's stated here in the first verse, a branch from Jesse, the roots of Jesse, this sprout will bear fruit. And I, I found, found myself wondering, like, is that not the greatest understatement in the Bible? I don't, I don't know, but I, I felt compelled. Maybe in one of the coming Sunday nights, we'll take time to just dwell on that. But think for a minute how much fruit the work of the branch has accomplished on the earth already. How, it is kind of mind-boggling. How many, how many individuals who were depraved and overtaken, how many have found themselves seated and in their right mind? How many have been purged of their sin? How many are free from guilt and shame? How many maybe for the first time realize their calling to life in this life? How many families that were filled with strife have been turned into refuges and places of peace? How many desperate needs have been met by him alone? How many, and such were some of you, encounters have there been where the Lord washes and cleanses and sanctifies. And that is an amazing statement. Uh, out of a stump, out of Israel's failure and disobedience, God's promise to bring forth new life and new life that will not just complete the promises of the kingdom of David, they will, but those will include doing the work of restoring the earth. That is, that's, that's hard to get a grip on. 
It's amazing. Jesus says, and, and I love this, because the Lord does it himself, we can mix metaphors here, but in John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we've gone from root and shoot to vine and branches. That's okay. It's the same premise. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's just a simple but powerful truth if we abide in him. This, even, even from the place of the stump, there's fruit ahead for you and for me and for Israel, thankfully. Not just for Israel, not just for her kingly leadership, but for all men, for whosoever will come and in humility before that shoot. Now, I can't make promises about what that new life in, in you know, your area of loss will look like, and I can't make promises how long it will take. As, as we just saw here in this case, the Lord is very patient with these things. He's willing for it to take a long time. But he will. He's the shoot that brings fruit from a stump. In verse 2, we begin to learn a bit more of this new life who will spring up. And it says in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And no doubt Israel had seen enough of the spirit of men, her own leaders, the leaders of other nations, the, the misleaders of their nation. Um, so one who is coming who is led of the spirit is, is amazing. And you know, um, I can't spend a lot of time on it, but it's astounding to recognize that this nation who was to have God as their king, who in Deuteronomy 17 God prophesies will reject that desire and choose a king for themselves, chooses poorly with Saul, almost chooses poorly again with all of Jesse's other sons, but the Lord chooses David. And even with that good choice of the Lord, a man after God's own heart, in this moment, in Isaiah, has come to a place where this king thing's not working out so good for you guys. Like you, are, you have not done well. You have not prospered. You are a wreck in terms of representing me to the planet. And so the Lord is going to deal with that. He's going to remove them from the land. Uh, but another king is coming. Who, who is the, the Davidic line is continuing through this branch. And we're about to start reading that, that now, though Isaiah clearly said the shoot would be from Jesse, so he has to be a man, we're also about to read that he has every attribute of the father. So, so a king is coming who will fulfill this covenant with David to rule and reign on the throne of Israel who is both fully man and fully capable of reigning eternally. Hmm. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's amazing. So the, the Lord himself, you rejected me as king. Who ends up being the king? It's the Lord himself. Right? It, He's, he's intent on blessing. He's content to bless. So this branch is from a man. Puts me in mind as we're about to look at the aspects of the spirit-filled nature of the walk and ministry of Jesus, but I can forget at times that Jesus being fully man as he tabernacled among us needed the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He set aside willingly the ability to make use of his heavenly prerogative and privileges, and he walked as a man. And so the ministry and the life and the perfection and the beauty that we see lived out in the Galilee and throughout Israel until he ascends, 
That's a man filled with the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. So his ministry wonderfully is marked and governed by the Spirit. And we could talk much about it, but uh, just starting with his, uh, with John the Baptist, when Jesus' pre-birth announcement comes, John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary herself is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit. Um, at Jesus' baptism later, we, hear, we learn that the Spirit dwells on Jesus. Starting in John 1, um, after he baptizes him, John says of Jesus, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be made manifest to Israel, so that the shoot might be known to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I've seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and testify, this is the son of God. So Jesus is filled by the spirit, led by the spirit, when to step into earthly ministry, who to go to, who to invite into that circle of disciples, who to touch, who to speak a word over, who to walk by and allow the disciples to heal later. He's led by the Spirit. Jesus prevails by the Spirit. His temptation in the wilderness was not a victory because he knew the Levitical law, It was victory because he walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke 4 tells us that. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So yes, he worked with the Word of God, but he was submitted fully to the Holy Spirit. This is the ministry of Jesus. The Spirit will be upon him. After his temptation, he returns, and you'll recall he goes into his hometown, Nazareth, enters a synagogue, begins to read the scroll handed to him, and where does he read? Do you recall? It's in Isaiah. It's another passage in Isaiah, and and he reads, where he begins to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He finishes the passage, closes, hands the scroll back, and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a clear reference to the Lord's proclamation that out of the stump is coming a shoot upon whom the Spirit will rest. This is the branch. This is the one I will fulfill my promise through. Jesus is saying, I'm the branch you were promised. I'm the hope of Israel for righteousness. I'm the proof that the stump wasn't dead. And I'm the hope for the restoration of the physical world. Jesus goes on to tell us as disciples, wait for me in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is poured out. The gifts listed in Romans, the gifts of the Holy Spirit listed in Romans and in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, they're all active and visible in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. And those of us who've been filled with the Holy Spirit, what does the Lord tell us we will do? Greater works than these. Greater works than we saw him do by virtue of being filled with the same spirit that rests on the branch. We're called out to do greater works. So now in the second half of uh, verse two in chapter 11, 
<clears throat> we hear uh, the Spirit described, and, and this is described by some as the, the sevenfold uh, spirits of God. Not that the Spirit of God is multiple spirits, but it's similar to uh, in Galatians or Thessalonians where uh, the grace of God is referred to as many faceted, multifaceted. There's just lots about it to describe. And so um, <clears throat> it's very specific that the Spirit of God uh, on him was a spirit. So there's three couplets here. The Spirit of God is on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And we can count on these things marking the ministry of the king of this branch. They're demonstrations of grace. So the, the first, wisdom and understanding, is his ability to perceive moral and abstract truth. Right? He, he grew in wisdom. Jesus grew in wisdom. We see him left behind uh, at Passover by his parents in the temple, 12 years old, sitting in front of the leadership, and they're what? They're amazed at his wisdom. Absolutely amazed. So he walked in this wisdom. Um, Understanding, he, he, there's, there's a wisdom that he demonstrates when the paralytic is let down through the roof and though he, he wants to forgive him, he chooses to heal him as well so that his authority to forgive sin on earth will be made known. It's, it's an ama- incredible display of wisdom. He knows how to bring forth the message and the work of the Lord. It's incredible. And I, it, it grieves me a bit when I think about it, but th- so they have wisdom incarnate in front of them through all of the years of his ministry. What if the Pharisees, the Sadducees, rather than trying to uh, condemn or trap or dismiss him, what if they had asked the questions that a heart should really ask? Like, um, can you tell me why the law doesn't really restrain my flesh? Right? Like, that would have been a good question to ask. Because he's... Filled with the spirit of wisdom. He's wisdom incarnate. Do I ask that question? Am I going to him with, the, with requests for the wisdom that I need to walk in what he wants to accomplish? Do I take advantage of that? You know, he may even give me the wisdom to know that I don't need to know. Right? There's, so I have lots of questions. They don't all need to be answered right now. I don't know if you knew that. I think it was Tozer in Knowledge of the Holy says, believing to know, not knowing to believe. Interesting to think on. So he has, uh, he has this wisdom that he's walking in. Also, counsel and might describes the spirit that he's walking in. It's the power at once both to scheme and originate. We don't like that word scheme, but it it works here. To scheme and originate and also to carry out the thought into act. This This is the branch has this upon him at all times, this ability to both initiate an activity and bring it to pass. And that's exactly what we're watching in this passage. In Isaiah 11, he has already schemed, desired, an eternal covenant with the house of David, and he's in the midst of demonstrating the power to bring it to pass in spite of their their abject disobedience. He doesn't say in Isaiah 11, "Eh, never mind, it's over. No, they will depart the land, but he raises up a branch who will complete this work the way he's always intended. And that's his heart, that's his power. 
And, and so it's wisdom and strength, you know, um, strength or might. How do we even measure might in our day? You know, we call a lot of things strong that are not strong. And we look at a lot of things that are strong and consider them weak. Recall the chief priests questioning Jesus incessantly, expecting him uh, to turn or to, or to answer back the charges that were corrupt. Uh, recall Pilate marveling when Jesus presented no defense for himself. We just sang about this, right? As the only one on the planet who could have ever refuted any charge, in the face of trumped up, bribed charges, he says nothing. That's the strength of the, of the Holy Spirit. That's not a, a religious endeavor or the work of my own flesh mustered up. That's his work. Many, many would consider that weak, but it's one of the greatest demonstrations of strength the planet has ever seen. He's silent before his accusers, also to fulfill prophecy. Why? Because he, he had already set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He had already determined that he would give his life a ransom for many. There was no turning. There was no, nothing to make. No, no excuse or no escape that he was looking for. Um, this... This might that the Spirit is giving him is the strength to endure coming unto his own and his own receiving him not. It's the strength that allows him to endure Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the strength of the Spirit that the branch is walking in, that marks him. So it has the power to initiate, the power to complete. And we'll see here in, in just a minute that these other changes that are coming to the planet, it's his power and his will to manifest them. And he won't be dissuaded. He created, he chooses to recreate. It's his desire, it's his initiative, it's in his purview to do. The last couplet says that he walks in knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And... Um, you know, the, in Deuteronomy 17, the king that was chosen had to write a copy of the law and know a copy of the law. Jesus is the word incarnate. The branch is the word incarnate. And it's from that that he's able to question those who think they're teachers of the law. In the, Mount, in the, in the speech on the Beatitudes, he, he says, you have heard it said. But I say unto you, he, he brings forth exactly what the Father meant, not what those men traditionally had decided to say it meant. This is the Spirit of the Lord at work in him. So you can confidently declare that. Verse 3, we read further that not only will the Spirit be upon him in these unique ways, but he will delight in the fear of the Lord. It had already been written of him in Psalm 40, verses seven and eight. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That's a different king to have over you, isn't it? What is it that, what, what else is it that had become delightful to Israel that had led her astray? What else is it that perhaps has become delightful to me that would lead me astray or lead me into pride? What is it that I'm hoping happens to me or for me? What is it that rules my mind and my actions, 
moment by moment, day by day, the Lord, the same spirit who led the branch can be at work in us to produce, to transform us, to, to make us men and women who delight to do his will. And if you're here tonight and that is not as of yet your experience, delighting to do his will, you can turn to him and ask for that work. He'll gladly do that work in you to transform you. And so it continues in verse three, because he delights in the fear of the Lord, he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So he, he's not limited to merely what he takes in, right? We, we, as I mentioned, David's anointing, Saul's anointing, very externally based discussions. How, how do they look? Do they look like a king? This branch is not doing that. It means he's not a corruptible judge. Don't we need that? He's a judge who fully perceives righteousness and truth. When your only aim is to please the Father, you're free from the concerns of any man. He's above being influenced because he's not subject merely to eyes and ears. He's above being influenced, which can work for us or against us, right? That means that my excuses don't carry a lot of clout with him either, right? Because he sees directly, as, as Hebrews tells us, right? All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But in verse four it says, with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. In the first half of this verse, it had been in chapter three of Isaiah, verses 14 and 15, where the Lord calls out this very thing. This is a contrast here. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Do you ever want to have to answer that question at all? It's a a horrible thought to have to answer for mistreating people that the Lord himself placed under your care. But the Lord will deal. He will humble. There will be an accounting for these things. It's encouraging that the Lord takes note of it, that his concern is for the poor or those without resources. And so this is part of the very reason they're being cut off. Now listen, the the first half of verse four, um, this flowing of righteous judgment and the you know, fairness for all who are afflicted. Is that how you would describe conditions today? Like, I don't know if you read the paper today, but this is not rampant yet. Like, obviously, we're not to the place where this branch is completely ruling and reigning in this fashion, but this is coming. And in our lives, those who know him, this is exactly what he does. He does deploy the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. He does make us those who have a heart for the poor and the downtrodden. Now, his goal is not to go out and through social justice try to change everything, but the people that we're interacting with, he wants us to display this heart. We're never to take advantage of those who are underprivileged or underpowered to achieve the things they need. We're to help them. We're to minister to them. It's expected of us by the Lord. 
Now, how our hearts react to the second part of verse 4, that he will strike with his mouth, uh, may depend on kind of what group you're in. You know, if, you, if you're walking with the Lord, that may encourage your heart. Um, but again, this demonstration of power and absolute dealing with unrighteousness did not mark the branches first appearing, did it? To the, to the dismay of some, right? You remember James and John and Jesus and the others heading to Jerusalem. And because they were heading to Jerusalem, when they tried to stop in a village of Samaria, they rejected them. And what was the answer? You remember, sons of thunder, would you like that we should call fire down on them, you know, just like, uh, just like Elijah did? Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are of. I did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Right? So, so there is a moment coming when the branch will deal in absolute authority and righteousness with all on the earth. But we're not there yet. And, and it, it's from verses like this, verse 4b, the second half there, where you can almost understand how in Jesus' day, those who were oppressed by Rome had a hope that the deliverance would be actual, practical, tangible, that there would be a throwing off of the rule of Rome. But the branch was coming, as I said, not all of the prophetic truth of the branch is here, but the branch was coming to deal with their bigger problem first, their sin issue, right? But you can understand that. So, so this second half of verse four is a clear reference to his final dealings with uh, those who op- oppose the Lord up until his return, both Jew and Gentile in one new man. Those who oppose the Lord will be dealt with. Revelation nineteen fifteen speaks of out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he will strike the nations, right? He'll tread the winepress of the wrath of God. So those on earth who have still resisted, he will deal with them in that way. It also speaks clearly that the branch will deal with the leader of that, the visible leader of it, the Antichrist, right? Uh, Paul is referring back in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, to this very promise in Isaiah 11, that this is what the branch would do. And he's encouraging and giving hope, and we should have that hope. And he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, um, and the, then the lawless one, so Paul is talking about an apostasy that's coming, and he says, and the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, so the branch who had tread on earth as a spirit-filled man returns in full brightness and will deal directly with all unrighteousness. Verse five continues describing him also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins. He's literally clothed in doing the things that please the Father. He's adorned and held together with obedience. Faithfulness is the belt about his waist. He does the Father's will only and he does the Father's will fully. And do that same in us, right? He, just as he was clothed in righteousness and obedience, the work of the Spirit in us brings us to that same place, clothed in righteousness and obedience. Why does he do it? Remember, he has the intent and the power to accomplish it. Do you recall in the New Testament that he who called you is faithful? Who also will do it? He will do this work in you. It's the work of the branch. So the first five verses have covered uh, the branch's nature. In these next verses, quickly, we'll just see his impact 
on everything that we know in this fallen, sin-sick world. Now, it doesn't cover every item, but these things that we know as true and broken, he fixes. Verse six, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Spoiler alert, if you do any of the things in these next verses six and seven with your children that are discussed here, Child Protective Services will rightly take them from you because it's not time for this yet. But this is coming. This is, this is the transformation that he will make. It is coming. His presence will do it. We've always just, you know, if you take your, if you take your wolf and lamb and leave him in the car or your, you take your leopard and your goat for a walk, only one of them comes back. We know that. Right? You, don't have to, you don't have to be told that. These are like predator-prey groupings. They're going away. Even the fear of man that was instilled in the animals after the flood of Noah as a kindness by the Lord, even that is removed. A little child will lead them. Doesn't happen. So the, the sin sadness that we've all experienced, every nature show, you know, that will be changed. I don't know what they're going to do for background music in those shows when the former predators show up. I think it'll be a little also tame. I don't know. Now, some animals graze, some animals eat other animals. We eat whatever we want, but that's going to be transformed. Um, we could argue that maybe we see some glimpses of that in the ways that you know, the Lord has worked, but, but really we see some restraining of it externally. We don't see the change of it by nature, and that's coming. All the sin sadness will vanish. Listen, it's interesting. We, we don't have time for it, but <clears throat> David, as a ruddy shepherd contended with a lion and a bear who stole a sheep. And he, and he prevailed, and that was a credit to him. But it's interesting that the greater David will change by his power and presence what David had to fight just to maintain. That encourages me about the branch. He will change it. It's not just a struggle to restrain. It's a transformation. That's what he's doing in us. It's not just, oh, I'm trying harder to do the law. no. Lord, change me from within. Dwell in me that I might desire to do your will always, Lord. That's what he's doing. Verse seven, the cow and the bear graze together. Uh, young lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. Carnivores will graze again. That's the power that this shoot will have. A nursing child, <clears throat> an infant, will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. Uh, don't do cobra kids daycare. Not, not time yet. But, it, but as sure as the branch who has redeemed us is sure, that's how sure this transformation is. This is coming. Those animals, verse nine, makes clear that those animals made dangerous through the consequences of the fall, they will no longer hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. Right? The enemy who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy has used those in their fallenness to bring harm. Why will they no longer harm anymore? How does it stop? What puts an end to it? <clears throat> the passage tells us why, how it's possible, and what the cause is. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And, and we can think a lot about the vastness of the sea and breath, 
the depth of the sea? Is there anything that, that 20,000 leagues of water doesn't penetrate? Right? The branch himself will return, will be resident, will be on site, and will change all. Everything will be infused with his knowledge. Not, now this is not, this is not, we don't have a data problem. This is not information that you will get. It's not a, you know, a, an MDiv that will be downloaded. Like our problem is not, we don't have an information problem. We have a lordship problem. The knowledge of him is the same knowledge that we saw in Isaiah 6. Coming before the one who's holy, 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 seeing him for all he is, and then recognizing what we are and being humbled by it and crying out. That's the work that's gonna happen. There's gonna be a complete end to that struggle. The knowledge of him will prevail. So let me, let me end us there. I wanna close us in prayer. There's, there's more I wanted to say, but um, this gives me just great hope. The branch is at work. The stump is not dead. He's at work in us. He's at work to redeem, he'll fulfill his promises to Israel as they're being judged. Father, we, um, <clears throat> we need you. We need to recognize, Lord, the extent of your work in us, the joy of it, the, uh, the power of it, Lord, that you are the author and finisher of it. Continue it, please. Father, make much of yourself in our lives. Uh, change everything about the fall, Lord, from within. We don't want... <clears throat> more accountability, we want transformation. Lord, minister that transformation to each heart by your spirit and your word and encourage us as we go forth, Lord, to, uh, to do those greater works than these. We love you, we just uh, bless you for who you are and all you're doing in the name of Jesus. Amen.